I think we should be looking at our carbon footprint in a very strategic way, not just saying we must raise consciousness about the environment, but actually practical measures. I'd like to see us all sharing equipment, sharing furniture, and actually working together to have less waste, less plastic, less travel, reduce our carbon footprint. So that, in a nutshell, is what I'd like to see happening. Art has the power to change the world by highlighting critical issues such as inequality, sustainability, gender equity, and much more. But what responsibility does the art world have to make their own changes and take inventory of internal practices that are unsustainable or inequitable? What responsibility do museums, art galleries, and those in the arts and cultural sector have to address the environmental cost of putting on exhibitions? After a conversation on this topic arose at a meeting of our Women Working in Culture Network, I wanted to dig deeper. So I called Imona Blaswick, director of the renowned Whitechapel Gallery in East London, to get her insight into what museums and art galleries can and should do to reduce and even eliminate their environmental impact, how art can build more economically and environmentally sustainable communities, and how women in leadership are able to push for progress in the arts. You're listening to Talking Culture, a futures podcast. Talking Culture is a platform for thought-provoking discussions about the future of Europe, the UK, and the world. I'm Franca Forth. Through fascinating interviews with thinkers and doers in the arts and cultural sector, this show investigates how creative fields are emerging from the tumultuous present into the future. What role will culture play in a post-Brexit, post-COVID-19, post-colonial world? And how can it contribute to a future that prioritizes sustainability, collaboration, diversity, and inclusion. From the Goethe Institute London, this is a podcast about the critical role and value that arts and culture have in our societies. Hi, Ivona. Thank you so much for joining me on Talking Culture today. Let's start with a question of what sustainability means to you. It's, it's a three-part question, I think. One is sustainability in terms of the relevance of our programs, uh, how meaningful we are as an institution, how meaningful art is. Are we being true to artists and art forms and, and ideas of our time? So that's one idea about sustainability. The second, of course, is financial, which is something that's definitely making us all very anxious at the moment because here in the UK, we only get a proportion of our costs covered by government through the Arts Council. Only a third of our finances are covered in that way. And the rest we either earn or raise. And so at the moment, of course, we're going through a real crisis where none of us have been able to earn any income for nearly four months. And also the beloved patrons, all the people who believe in us and, and support us through donations or sponsorship, they themselves have also been hit by the crisis. So the financial sustainability of the Whitechapel Gallery and our, our art world is something that I think everybody is very concerned about at the moment. And thirdly is environment. And that's also something which I think is uh, hugely concerning at the moment. Perhaps it's a little bit of a at the back of our minds because we're dealing with a pandemic. But on the other hand, what's been really striking is the revival of nature as we've stopped our activities. And 
For the first time in London, we hear birdsong. I had two dragonflies floating into my kitchen here in the middle of London uh, last week. And that's been very moving and very powerful to see how quickly nature can restore itself and how blissful it can be to see bird life, animals, plants uh, reviving and reasserting their place in our lives. And so that makes us think, I think, about how we can be more environmentally sustainable. And it's a big issue that the art world has really got to confront. Let's start with the last thing you mentioned, environment. What are the biggest challenges for museums and art galleries in terms of managing or reducing the ecological footprint? I think we should be looking at our carbon footprint in a very strategic way, not just saying we must raise consciousness about the environment, but actually practical measures. And one of the things that we use a lot of is energy, particularly in things like climate control. The kind of insurance values of works of art today are really extraordinary. The market has, I think, probably overinflated values. And we also have very active and, and important conservation teams all over the world protecting works of art. But as a consequence, the demands in terms of, for example, climate control have really become almost excessive. Very recently, we've been asked to provide climate-controlled crates for the shipment of works. The cost of this and uh, financially, but also the cost of the amount of energy that we use to keep our spaces at a certain temperature I think is probably unsustainable. And I feel that we should have a little bit more flexibility on the conditions in which we keep works of art. We have to remember that with art historical masterpieces, many of them survived for centuries in drafty old castles or, or stately homes where there's no climate control and they're damp and they have, you know, drafts and so forth. But they've survived. And I think on the one hand, respect and, and um, committed to the idea of keeping works for posterity. But on the other hand, if it's at the cost of the planet, I think we really have to have more flexibility. I also think that the shipping of works of art could be far more economically done, that perhaps we could consolidate more resources work in a more collegiate way, where we all share information about works of art as they move around the world and share all the shipping costs. We could have a database where we find out what's moving from where and, and consolidate the shipment and movement of works. And I think we could consolidate our events as well. There are lots of very exciting and very important biennales, for example, and art fairs. Uh, the market is, is part of our ecosystem. We couldn't, artists couldn't survive without it. Let's program them so that they're together. So we don't find ourselves having to be on a plane every month of the year. I think it's time to really connect up the dots between us. And then I think we could do a lot about reducing waste. At the moment, works of art have got very elaborate crates. Can't we have a kind of Ikea crate, a flat pack crate that takes on different shapes and can accommodate different kinds of works of art? Why are we using so much plastic, so much polystyrene? Couldn't we use shredded paper for packaging, these kinds of small ideas, but they kind of add up. And we know that we destroy a lot of things. We make these very ambitious exhibitions and then we destroy 
the scenography around them, the furniture, the installation cases, the, the vitrines. I want to see us upcycling, reusing, just being much more mindful about the level of waste that's involved in all of our activities, from gigantic art fairs to very ambitious exhibitions. I'd like to see us all sharing equipment, sharing furniture, and actually working together to have less waste, less plastic, less travel, reduce our carbon footprint. So that, in a nutshell, is what I'd like to see happening. I mean, in the current situation, there's also a lot of cultural institutions and museums are putting programs online and digitalizing them, and in a way that is more sustainable. But on the other hand, people miss going to museums, miss going out, um, experiencing art. Do you think that's a trend that will continue? Or what positive thing do you think will come out of this crisis in terms of sustainability and the art and cultural sector? It seems to me it's a dual. It's uh, what someone said, it's the screen and the it's both, that they enhance one another. I don't think there's anything that can replace the experience of being in a space with a work of art. I went back to the Whitechapel Gallery just last week and all our exhibitions are there slumbering like sleeping beauties behind locked doors. And the sheer visceral pleasure of standing in front of a great painting, a great work of art, was breathtaking. I'd kind of forgotten. And there is nothing that can take the place of that. That was a painting. Imagine seeing a sculpture or being immersed in an installation. We have a huge environment by the artist Carlos Bunga. To walk through that on my own was just such a profound experience. So nothing can take the place of that. On the other hand, we've been able to circulate works of art from around the world through digital platforms. We have a fantastic consortium of spaces literally around the world, and we are all part of a group sharing moving image work. The Artist Film International Consortium has 20 members. Everyone in that consortium nominates an important moving image artist from their region. And up until the epidemic, we were showing each other's works in our spaces. But as we all went into lockdown, we moved that program online. And so, you know, as we speak, we have a kind of film festival going on with works from Mumbai, from Kabul, from Buenos Aires, from Istanbul. It's an amazing lineup of artists' works that would be impossible to access without the digital world. On the other hand, I think we've all been a little bit deluged by digital offerings. It's been very generous, very exciting, but also a bit overwhelming. And there's a moment when you want a simple, <laughs> focused <laughs> engagement with something physical. So it seems to me that it has a dual role. Role One is to keep us in touch with what's happening around the world and also to celebrate the tremendous work that's being made for digital, uh, digital art. But at the same time, We need to be in our spaces. We need that that engagement, that phenomenological, sensational um, being in a space with the materiality, the viscosity, the tactility of art. Then a third part of that, I think, is deepening our experience so that when we're in a gallery and we see something that excites us, we can then turn to our tablets and do deeper research about it. And there's a growing body of really interesting criticism and work which is 
appearing online where we can track our the artists that we love or objects that we've seen and and read about them and find out more and then i think the fourth thing is really developing our audiences because we know that for a lot of young people that's their medium the digital is their space and that's i think how we should be developing our future generations to come and be engaged with art and it's the primary channel of communication. You also mentioned a few practical measures that can be implemented to reduce the ecological footprint. The Whitechapel Gallery is also doing quite a number of these measures. Do you want to just name a few that you're doing and think are quite successful? Well, the, the first thing that we're doing is actually we're going to have a conference where we want to invite all the people who are involved, not in not so much in the activist side of the climate change movement, but more in the practical. We want to invite shippers, truckers, conservators, art world professionals, technical teams, installation managers, all the people that you know involved in the delivering of exhibitions who are really often completely behind the scenes. But I think they're at the front line of delivering change. And we need to work together. We need to draw on the skill set, the ideas, the technical and engineering innovations that those communities can bring. We need to set up databases. We need, in a way, to look at our infrastructures and how we can pool our resources and our knowledge to come up with new solutions. I think also working with industry, that we've got to We've got to be advocates for change with lighting companies, with the kind of companies that create climate control systems, boilers, all the nitty gritty of making our spaces carbon neutral. And that could be engineers, it could be interior designers, it could be lighting designers, engineers and so forth. I think those are the communities that we've now got to draw together to have a think tank and practical solutions for dealing with this. As an organisation, of course, we we're involved in consciousness raising, but we also have a zero waste to landfill policy. So everything is recycled, everything from our restaurant, food to, you know, the, the usual kind of detritus that comes from offices and, and so forth, that we, we seek to recycle or upcycle everything that we do. Increasingly, we're encouraging colleagues to travel by train to avoid the, the frequent flyer program that we're all very much at, up until this time uh, involved in. And perhaps we might all look to what's been called a sort of hyperlocalism. And I think that's a big challenge is to reduce our carbon footprint by perhaps looking nearer to home without at the same time becoming parochial or hermetic, or nationalist. So it's, a, it's an interesting challenge, and I'm not quite sure what the answer is yet, but I think that is something that we're going to see more of, is perhaps working more locally, working with artists from the regions, as well as celebrating what's happening in the world. I'd like to go back to what you also mentioned in the beginning concerning the relevance of the programmes and working with meaningful artists. How are museums in the cultural sector able to raise awareness through their programs and maybe promote sustainability to the wider public? I mean, we're we're a platform for art, so it's not that we're going to have a singular agenda because there's so many different issues that we'd like to 
support. But in the end, I think we are there to create a voice for artists and and to find a way of disseminating their ideas and their vision. And at the same time, through our public programmes, our education activities and so on, support that with perhaps a wider context of uh, interpretation and activity and uh, sort of participation around these subjects. And one of the things that we did recently where all of this kind of came together was a two-year series on the rural. And that was inspired or precipitated rather by Brexit, which I was so upset and horrified that that happened. I couldn't believe it. It was it was such a shock. It was such a wake-up call. And it made us realise that the cities really have dominated our visual culture, that you know, all of the discussions, everything centres on urbanism. And that what we'd completely overlooked in Britain was the the rural, the, the non-urban communities, the suburban, the provincial, the people living in perhaps an agricultural setting. And I realised that that was a community that felt disenfranchised, alienated, left behind, not part of the discussion. And it was a wake-up call. So we had a series of talks where we were guided by a fantastic collective called My Villages. And the three artists who who are part of that collective helped us shape a number of talks and events in partnership with places like Wysing, which is an amazing studio organisation in Cambridge, with the University of Aberystwyth in Wales. And as part of that, they made an exhibition where they looked at how village communities in different parts of the world had dealt with the erosion of their local environments by agro-industry or by the rising temperatures, flooding, erosion through the cutting down of trees and so forth. So it was a really interesting filter through which to show not only crisis, but also solutions and strategies that had been developed at a grassroots level. So rather than feeling that sort of sense of helplessness, that it's so apocalyptic, there's nothing we can do, they helped us and my colleagues identified some amazing initiatives where you had a feeling of agency. And what we hoped was through that series that that would inspire our visitors. And we ended with a, a fantastic conference and a great keynote speech by an artist from Taiwan called Wu Ma Li. And her work in Taiwan with rural communities was just extraordinary. So those kinds of initiatives are so exciting. And I think what they do is that they connect things. So they don't treat the environment as something separate. They don't treat nature as being somehow non-human, that we are nature. And they, they kind of reconnected us with these holistic grassroots activities. You mentioned Brexit. Is how does that affect the UK creative industry in terms of you know promoting or dealing with the more sustainable programs or tackling the ecological footprint? What is your experience, or what have you seen? Well, we haven't got there yet, as you know. There's still no agreement, so True. we're very we're very anxious about it because we know that it's going to hugely impact the possibility of freedom of movement for artists. Uh, across all the art forms, you know, from orchestras to dancers to visual artists. And it also impacts on the incredible student community that makes 
the the British arts scene so vibrant. We welcome art students from all over the world, and that's going to become a huge barrier for students from across the European Union. We are very anxious about the movement of works of art, that with tariffs, with the barriers, it's going to make it very difficult for us to cooperate. We are able to make exhibitions because we share resources with European museums. We made a big exhibition of a a very important South African artist called William Kentridge. We were only able to make that show because we could collaborate, share costs, share resources with the Louisiana Museum in Denmark and the Castello di Rivoli in Italy. Those kinds of cooperations are going to be made almost impossible if the Brexit agreements cannot be resolved in an equitable way, where culture is prioritised, where knowledge, where freedom of movement, and where also colleagues who we can recruit to be part of our team can no longer join us. 25% of my team are EU nationals, and it's threw everybody into a state of huge anxiety. It, it was also very alienating for people to think, are we not welcome? So I think the results could be very serious. They could be catastrophic. We're working to ensure that they're not. And I very much hope that governments across the EU and in Britain realise that we mustn't lose those freedoms and that culture will be impoverished if we cannot keep the idea of a free exchange open between us all. Let's go to the topic of female leadership in this whole sustainability context and discussion. I found a quote by Mary Robinson, the former UN Special Envoy on Climate Change, who said that the challenges of climate change cannot be solved without empowering women. Now, a number of art and culture institutions are led by women. Do you think that female leaders are better visionaries for a sustainable future? I mean, I wouldn't say that my male peers are any less concerned about the environment than than I am. So maybe it's that kind of position of outsiderness or of being the other, of being unheard, that makes us perhaps more alive to the crisis and how to battle it. I also wonder if because within a capitalist system, the whole leadership of big multinational corporations, which abstract transactions, which are based on extraction, and which have such a tiny proportion of female leaders, that 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 perspective is missing. And there is a kind of peculiar disconnect from chief executives who have families who live on this planet, and yet have no qualms whatsoever about extracting oil, about fossil fuels, about toxic chemicals, and yet somehow don't believe it affects them or their or their children or their communities. And maybe that's, that's an aspect of femininity about perhaps a hyper-awareness of perhaps a family or of, of children, maybe, that makes us more sensitive to the dangers of where we're progressing. And our absence from those decision-making, from the policy-making, is leading to the catastrophe. I, I feel certain of that. And how could these female leaders from the arts and cultural sector push and propel a more sustainable future outside their sector and actually influence people? I mean, obviously, we've learned a great deal from many young people and how they've taken activism 
to the streets. They've been very, very vocal in in bringing the issues to the foreground. I suppose our our ability to communicate the platforms that we have to engage people, and because of our you know our need, we we have many stakeholders. We need for our survival to to get the investment of the private sector, the public sector to be in dialogue with politicians, with policymakers, also with those who run corporations who collect art. Many of the greatest collections are from people who made their, their wealth through industry and trade. And, and so we have an amazing channel, perhaps, of communication to advocate for change. Perhaps it's the relationships that come together through our shared belief in art and culture and our shared engagement with it that gives the opportunity to have those conversations. Also, I suppose, in the sense that so many artists are really passionately engaged in raising consciousness and finding a way to give a platform to the, uh, the voices of Indigenous artists, for example, the the role of the non, non-human world, of non-human species, of their rights. That's been a subject for many, many artists and I think we've seen that through a number of exhibitions and also publishing. We're very dedicated to publishing and we have a series called Documents of Contemporary Art, anthologies which really focus on important issues in art and ideas of our time. And we've, we've published an entire volume on nature and that's a platform, I think, where we can also raise consciousness but also share strategies can you mention or describe any sustainable cultural programs or initiatives which had an impact? There is this Wu Mali policy, and it was Wu Mali is a Taiwanese artist who was in fact commissioned by her government to work in a rural community which was declining. It was impoverished, and she brought in other artists to work with local communities. And there was one group who worked a village who were. Entire, their entire economy was based on tea, and they were tea pickers. They grew tea in plantations, and they had a guest ceramicist working with them for six months or a year. He was in residence, and a year after he left, the entire plantation slid down the hill in torrential rain. They lost everything, and as a consequence of his work with them, they rebuilt their economy by turning their former uh, little gardens and pigsties into tea pavilions and in making their own ceramics. And they've turned around their economy and they're now a kind of cultural centre for tea drinking and for growing tea of different types. So that was an amazing project that actually was, you know, it went full full circle through an artist's intervention education, creative workshops, followed by a catastrophe, followed by an economic and cultural revival. You also mentioned finances, and that is a big issue right now. Also because of COVID-19, the cultural sector is at risk of financial cuts in many countries and is facing an unknown future. How feasible do you think is achieving sustainability in the sector right now? giving its limiting capacity? Well, we've got to make sure that governments understand that culture is a basic human right and a civic necessity. 
we're all beginning to think about reopening. I know that in Germany, the museums have reopened with a huge appetite from the public. So we've got to somehow be seen as, as, as being as vital as health. We are part of health. We are part of a remit to education. And we also have to be recognised as, as being of crucial importance in our own right. So that's one thing. I, I, I suppose also we look back to historical moments. I'm very proud of the fact the Whitechapel Gallery didn't close during the Second World War. It was amazing. Even though it had 56 days of bombing, it, it was still open and it had an audience. And you realise that there is a huge a, a hunger for uh, works of art to transcend, to give us a potential for reflection, understand who we are, where we are, why we are in this situation. So that necessity is going to drive the willingness of public and private bodies to continue to invest in us. I also think that art institutions are very entrepreneurial, we're very inventive. Artists have always taken the lead in this. They can make an amazing situation out of nothing. We know so many artists who, in their studios, with the poorest of materials, can create an extraordinary experience or, or sequence of meaning. So we must learn from that. We must learn what we can do with our with our resources. Going back to your point about the digital, if we are able to maintain those platforms of communication, that's really key throughout this period. But I think we have to say to people, support us, give what you can. That's what I'm doing. I'm giving small donations. My credit card bill this month was was really quite low as I've not been out for four months. <laughs> so I thought, great, I can help, you know, artist spaces, I can help smaller galleries, but just small amounts with what I can afford. And I think we are all having to perhaps support one another. Artists themselves are fantastically generous. They've been creating editions, they've been creating, they've been giving work to auctions to help support spaces. So I think it's going to be a big collaborative project. And everybody's part of it, from the auction houses to the art fairs to charities, NGOs. We're all in it together. And I think we have to advocate. We have to also welcome and embrace our publics and make them feel that we're necessary to their lives. And that's, that's an issue which has been raised over the last few weeks, I think, with the Black Lives Matter campaigns. Who are our audiences? Are we serving everybody? Do people from BAME communities feel that we are for them? I hope so. We, we have to be for everybody. And I think that's going to be part of our sustainability and our survival, is making us feel as if we're relevant to all sectors of community, of the community, urban, rural, young, old, and from across different socioeconomic groups and from diverse backgrounds of all kinds, ethnic, and economics. So that's going to be a challenge, is actually making ourselves feel welcome to everyone and relevant to everyone. How can the cultural world proceed from here post-COVID-19? So I think it's a message about cooperation. Can we pool our resources? Can we share? Can we collaborate to get everyone through this crisis? And also perhaps see all of the de debates that have happened about climate crisis and about this 
issue of uh, racism, which has been really, really kind of incendiary around the world. Can we see that as a new beginning? One of our trustees, David DeBosa, addressed us last night, our board of trustees. He was so inspiring. And he said, I see a bright new future. He sees it with such optimism, the possibility of change. And that's what I'd like to believe, that we can embark on a whole new way of understanding our art world and the possibilities of opening new fields of comprehension of new histories that have been obscure, of new voices that have been marginalised and new visions, new perspectives. So I think we have to proceed in the post-COVID world with a knowledge of what we, we had briefly, the paradise of nature restored, you know, the fish in the Venetian canals, the, the goats strolling through the streets of Londodno in Wales, the dragonflies in a kitchen in North London. All of that has been so thrilling. And I really hope we don't lose it. We don't lose the momentum, coupled with the discussions that are taking place throughout all our institutions at the moment about inequality, about anti-racism, and that these two things will go together in changing us in a really exciting way, and that it's going to bring new learning, new new knowledge, and um, certainly exciting new perspectives in art. So I'm, I'm hopeful. Thank you so much, Ravona, for this inspiring interview. Thanks for listening to Talking Culture, a Futures podcast, a production of the Goethe Institute London. You've been listening to Ivona Blaswick, director of the Whitechapel Gallery in East London. Ivona is a participant in the Goethe Institute's Women Working in Culture Network, an international group of female leaders in the arts and cultural sector. You can find out more about the network on our website at goethe.de slash London. Next time on the podcast, there's a bigger sense of global community that's trying to work towards these values that are anti-racist and that are more inclusive and that care more about people over profit. People are what is going to stay around and we have to look after each other. Otherwise, we'll have more division and people will be left behind. And, you know, what I or what our uh, project was about in the beginning was the question, what can we as a young generation actually do to preserve, to stabilize, to help construct this building even further, you know, because we are born into it without having done anything for it. In the next episode, two young intellectuals, one from the UK and one from Germany, reflect on their European identity, what constitutes Europe, and how we can preserve the celebration of unity and difference that they feel is integral to a European future. The Goethe Institute is the Cultural Institute of Germany. We foster international culture exchange and enable cultural involvement in over 100 countries worldwide. At the Goethe Institute London, we offer German language courses, cultural programs, events, literature, and much more, both on-site and online for audiences throughout the UK and worldwide. You can find out more on our website, goethe.de slash London. For this episode, we worked with Better Lemon Creative Audio and executive producer Hannah Hathman, hosting research and narration by myself. Till next time, I'm Franca Forth.